Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today we're going to journey over to a community known as Watervalee and look at the history of that village. The name Watervalee is a Dutch word that means where the waters meet. And it's a village over in Berrien County, Michigan. So we're going to explore some of the history of this fascinating place. So come along and join me. Now the information that I'm going to be reading today is a historical account that was written in 1880 and it covers the history of Berrien and Van Buren counties, Michigan. And it was published by a company out of Philadelphia called DW Ensign and Company. And it's a biographical account of both Berrien County and Van Buren County. And in this episode, I'm just exploring the history of the village of Watervalee. Now, Watervalee is in the extreme northeastern township of Berrien County. This is how it reads back in 1880. And it retains the original town allotment of six square miles and occupies a fruitful agricultural territory peopled by a community of thrifty and prosperous agriculturalists. The township boundaries are the Van Buren County line on the north and east, Bainbridge Township on the south, and Hagar Township on the west. The surface of this country is generally level and gently undulating, and near the center of the township, diversified by two moderately large sheets of water, known respectively as Pawpaw Lake and Little Pawpaw Lake while numerous watercourses and ponds scattered here and there provide a picturesque prospect and bountiful irrigation. The Pawpaw River, an exceedingly crooked stream, flows through the center of the township from east to west and empties into the St. Joseph River at Benton Harbor. The Chicago and West Michigan Railroad passes through Watervalee, generally along the river's course and having stations at Coloma, and Watervalee, and gives the town excellent railway conveniences. Now, this was obviously during the time when there was passenger railways that went through both of these cities. There still is railroad service through Watervalee, but it primarily is freight service these days, as much of Michigan is, and there's not much in the way of passenger uh, railways, as far as I can tell. I don't believe Amtrak is a stop in Watervalee, for example. And it goes on to say that the township, although largely devoted to the cultivation of fruit, is also a rich grain-producing region. Among the farmers are a few families of Indians who are located in the north and who, in common with their brethren of adjoining townships, have sought to make a mark as tillers of the soil, but their success, as a rule, is not great. The first settlement by the white man in what is now Watervalee Township was begun in 1832 at a point on the Pawpaw River about three-quarters of a mile about the present village of Coloma and on the opposite shore. Shingle makers first invaded the locality and the place was therefore known as Shingle Diggings. The narrative of the rise and progress of the diggings, as gathered from Mr. Stephen R. Gilson, now living in Coloma, and himself a resident in Watervalley longer than anyone in the township, is given as follows. In October 1834, Mr. Gilson of Chicago County, New York, in with his father, was a pioneer, rode in company with a friend, 
to Sandusky, Ohio, intending to stop a while in Michigan and then to push on to Chicago, which he proposed to make his future home. From Sandusky, young Gilson traveled on foot via the Maumee country, and so barren was the region of population that in 30 miles travel, he saw but one house. Happening to know Stephen Purdy, who was living in Berrien Springs in Michigan, Gilson bent his steps thither and visited his friends, with whom he remained several days, during which time he tried but unsuccessfully to obtain employment, learning that Levi Ballingee, then stopping at Wilson's Tavern in St. Joseph Village, was in want of a shingle-maker for his place on the pawpaw, Gilson went down and bargained with Ballingy and assisted him in getting out 125,000 shingles. Together, they set out for Mr. Ballingy's place in November 1834, and there in due time, Mr. Gilson began his western career as a shingle maker. Mr. Ballingy's location, as already indicated, was a short distance from the present village of Coloma across the Pawpaw, and there he had been living with his wife some time. How he came to be there may be told in relating the story of the first white settlement there and the circumstances immediately following it. In 1832, Job Davis of Cass County made the first land entry in the territory now occupied by Waterville Township. His purchase embraced 150 acres on Section 21, and he went upon the place intending to get out lumber and shingles for the St. Joseph Market. Tiring of his enterprise, however, before he had fairly tried it, he disposed of his interest to Messrs. Griffith, Hoyt, and Hatch, who joined for the purpose of digging a canal from Pawpaw Lake to the Pawpaw River, building a sawmill on the Pawpaw, and engaging in a liberal extent in lumbering, B.C. Hoyt, a St. Joseph merchant, being the managing partner of the firm. Davis had already got out a frame for a sawmill, had it on the ground ready to put up, had begun the construction of a dam, and had dug a mill pit so that Griffin and Company found matters in such a state of progress that they looked forward to a speedy completion of the, of the projected improvements. At this juncture, however, one Sumner stepped in and disarranged their plans. Mr. Hoyt of the lumbering firm had sued Sumner on a store account, and Sumner determined to be revenged. Knowing that Griffith and Company, by a singular oversight, had failed to acquire a right to the land opposite their mill property, where their dam must necessarily touch, Sumner entered the land in question and then forbade Griffith and Company from building their dam on his land. This was something that Griffith and Company had not contemplated and an obstacle which they were powerless to remove. For Sumner utterly refused to sell his land to the mill firm at any price and thus unable to prosecute their work, Griffith and Company were compelled to abandon it. Upon first beginning the operations, they surveyed and laid out a town near the proposed mill site and sought to induce settlements and the implied understanding that the canal and mill would make the neighborhood a lively and valuable business point. One of the first to act upon the promise of future advantage held forth by Griffith and Company was Levi Ballingy, who bought of Mr. Brown of St. Joseph 80 acres of land near the site of the new town and put up 
first a log cabin, and then a frame of considerable size, which he proposed to make a house in which to board the men to be employed by Griffith & Company. The failure of Griffith & Company and their lands being transferred to the Farmers and Mechanics Bank of St. Joseph left Mr. Ballingy and his boarding house frame on his hands as a piece of useless property. Being there, however, he resolved to remain, and thus it happened that, being in St. Joseph in search of workmen, he found Mr. Gilson and entered upon the business of shingle-making as the founder of Shingle Diggings. The narrative returns now to the time, November 1834, when Gilson joined Balangy in shingle-making. Balangy and Gilson worked industriously at that business through the winter, visiting St. Joseph occasionally by way of the river in canoes. During the winter, Rumsey Christie of St. Lawrence County, New York, came to the diggings with his wife and three children, squatted, put up a cabin, and commenced making shingles on his own account. In the spring of 1835, Hiram Ormsby, with his family, joined the little colony, and shingle-making began to be lively. About this time, Mrs. Christie died. This was the second death in this locality and the first in the diggings proper. Job Davis's wife had died soon after his settlement in 1832. Her remains were at first deposited near the mill site, but afterwards conveyed to the Sumnerville Cemetery. The first shingle maker was Isaac Youngs, who came in with his family in 1835, followed by Erastus Barnes, Henry Selter, and others. In 1835, Gilson went back to New York State for his family, brought them without delay to the shingle diggings, and became a resident there, and commenced to making shingles on his own account. He, like a majority of the shingle makers, squatting where it suited him, and making shingles where he could find desirable timber. For three years, the business of shingle making was carried on with much spirit, Quite a number of people were engaged in it, and the diggings grew to the dignity of an improved and an important settlement. Gilson had prospered so well that he purchased that year all the shingles made in the diggings. He bought at one time 1,300,000 and employed Indians to run them down the river to the St. Joseph, upon which reaching the place, he had a force of 20 Native Americans whose performance in taking the shingles out of the river and landing them on the dock was said to have been a lively affair and very interesting. All the shingles made at the diggings were thus transported to St. Joseph and their market, and there was a good demand for them, and the diggings became a thriving place. So well did it flourish as a settlement that in 1837 a school was desired, and the inhabitants of the diggings applied to the township, St. Joseph, for assistance and supporting a school. The application being denied, the shingle makers remembered that E.P. Deacon had agreed to clear the school land near the diggings and that he had failed to complete the work. They proceeded, therefore, to take possession of the timber remaining on the land, worked it into shingles, and with the proceeds of the sale thereof, started a school by engaging Mary Youngs, a daughter of one of the shingle makers, as teacher. She taught about six months in the log cabin used by Job Davis as his residence when he first settled there. Lydia Kingsley of St. Joseph was afterwards engaged and taught in a log schoolhouse put up in the woods. The school, however, was the last one taught in that neighborhood. 
The diggings was not without the benefit of public religious teachings. In 1837, Simeon Woodruff, a Presbyterian minister and settler in Bainbridge, preached occasionally at Mr. Gilson's house. The first child born in the diggings was Mr. Christie's, the second was Mr. Ornsby's, and the third Mr. Gilson's. In 1838, the material for shingles being exhausted, the shingle makers departed for other places. Mr. Ballingee to Missouri, Gilson, Youngs, and Selter to Bainbridge, and the others farther east and west. Shingle diggings became therefore an abandoned settlement, and at this point drops out of the history of the township. Moses Osgood, living at Perch River, Jefferson County, New York, in 1836, engaged that year to accompany Isaac Moffat, Smith and Merrick's land agent and manager, to Michigan, and upon arrival in Waterville, worked about the mills. In the following year, he sent for his family, and after that, continued to live in Waterville Village about two years, working meanwhile for the mill firm. He then bought 40 acres of land on a site west of Coloma, and after living there five years, sold out in 1842 to James Paul, who had just come from Chautauqua, New York. And he lived there at that place until his death in 1872. And so let's move on to the founding of Waterville Village, the first improvement made on what is now known as the Waterville Village was affected in 1833 by Sumner and Wheeler, who put up a sawmill on Mill Creek near the present site of Swain and Onsley Sawmill. So this was a time when sawmills were very common. Obviously, this was 1880 when this was written, so they were well-known established sawmills at the time in Waterville. And it goes on to say that it will be remembered that in the history of shingle diggings, References made to Mr. Sumner as having interfered materially with Griffith and Company's mill building enterprise. After their affair, Sumner and Wheeler built the sawmill on Mill Creek and employed two brothers named Van Dusen from Prairie Rond to run the mill for them. So Sumner made that move that made it impossible for Griffith and Company to build the mill because he wouldn't allow them access to the other side of the dam that they needed to run the mill. And so after their whole firm collapsed financially, they went ahead and built their own mill. Uh, Very interesting, shrewd business tactics during the early foundings of Waterville Township. So the mill was a small one propelled by a flutter wheel, but managed to turn out considerable lumber, some of its first work being the timber for the boarding house frame, which Mr. Levi Ballingy erected at Shingle Diggings. The Van Dusen brothers lived in a slab shanty near the mill and were beyond question the first white inhabitants at that point. The Van Dusens managed the mill until 1835 when one Crocker, a millwright, rented it and moving in with his family upon the place took possession. In 1836, Jesse Smith of the firm of Smith & Merrick of French Creek, Jefferson County, New York, visited this section to make arrangements for clearing large tracts of land which the firm owned in what are now the townships of Bainbridge, Waterville, and Hagar, the greater portion being in Bainbridge, in that district now covered by a German settlement. Mr. Smith was accompanied by Israel Kellogg and several laborers, the latter of whom, under the direction of Mr. Kellogg, who acted then and afterwards as Smith & Merrick's representative and land agent, did some work at clearing land and built a sawmill 
near Sumner and Wheeler's, which later Smith purchased and leased, that as well as the new one to Crocker. The lumber was low, and as Smith preferred to turn his attention to clearing land and putting in wheat, which he did to a great extent, he paid but little heed to the firm's milling interests. Smith eventually returned to New York in 1836, and he left Kellogg to look after his interests, and in that same year, Smith and Merrick sent out Isaac Moffat with 32 Frenchmen to finish the work on the Michigan lands. Moffat and his men sailed from Buffalo in a vessel belonging to the firm and loaded with all sorts of supplies for the new settlement. Moffat got his men and supplies safely to Watervalee and at once put up a store about opposite where Walden's store now stands. These apparently were very well-known stores in 1880 when this was written. He also built a grist mill during that time as well. Now, it is said that of the 32 Frenchmen brought out by Moffat, that they used to eat a barrel of pork every three days, and of them, only two are known to be living in the vicinity of Watervalee. Edward Eber, a farmer in Hartford Township, and Felix Rosette, a tavern keeper in Hartford Village. A third, John Lattero, died in the county almshouse in 1879. And obviously, this was written in 1880. So over the years, up until 1880 when this was written, the mills passed through several different ownerships, and it describes it fully in this article. But I want to move on to some of the other industry that was established in the early founding of the village of Watervalee. Jonas Ivory was the pioneer blacksmith at Watervalee, and his date of settlement began in 1837. The first stores that were established in Watervalee was the one started by Isaac Moffat in 1836, when he came to the country with his company of 32 Frenchmen. His store was called the Mill Store, and the stock put into it was the cargo of supplies Moffat brought in his vessel from Buffalo. The Mill Store was kept by Moffat and Israel Kellogg in the interest of Smith and Merrick, while that firm controlled the mill property, and when they sold out to another man by the name of Swain, they also sold the store as well. When Swain came in, Redding, who was working at the mills, retired from his work at the mills and started a store known as the Variety Store. And that became the second store in the Watervalley Village. Thus, there were two stores, and this was around 1848. And this was for the first time in history of the village of Watervalee. When Redding eventually died in 1849, he was succeeded by a firm called Clay and Ensign, and after that time, a man by the name of Ed Goodale took over and became the clerk of that store. By 1880, uh, there were roughly about a dozen different stores in the village of Watervalee when this was written, including a hardware store and a meat market, and several furniture stores and a harness shop and Mrs. Pierce's Millinery. And besides those stores, there were other shops in the area like a blacksmith shop, cooper shops, and shoe shops. Now let's talk about some of the taverns. The first house of entertainment in Watervalee was a boarding house for mill hands, which was opened by Mr. W.W. W. McKee in a building which stood opposite the site of Walden's store. This building was afterwards sawed into two pieces and was still doing duty in one half as a blacksmith shop and the other half was a residential house. But originally it had been the first place of entertainment 
as a boarding house for mill hands, and later it became a tavern that had been built by Mr. Swain. Mr. Swain had originally intended to build a boarding house, but he turned it into a tavern instead. And by 1867, Swain's store and tavern were destroyed by a fire. And the aftermath of that, the store was the only building that was rebuilt and was still standing by 1880. Another tavern called the Public House was later built by John Lake in 1847, but it didn't open initially, and it sat there empty and vacant for almost a decade before it finally opened as a tavern and hotel of sorts. The post office at Watervalley Village was established in 1849 when Isaac Swain was appointed as the postmaster. Prior to that, Mr. Swain had a contract with some of the inhabitants as favored, and they arranged to have the mail brought in from the Bainbridge post office twice a week. And of course, the building that made a lot of change in Watervalley was the railway depot. Upon the completion of the Chicago and Michigan Lakeshore Railroad to Watervalley in 1869, L.A. Manson was appointed as the depot agent. In 1871, he was succeeded by Mr. Walden, who continued to occupy that position until 1880 when this was written. In 1869, a grain elevator was attached to the depot, and large quantities of grain were annually shipped from this station, while shipments of fruit during the season were also considerable, and one shipper alone having forwarded 2,000 barrels of apples in 1878. That is a lot of apples. Peach shipments were also a major crop, and there had been as many as 3,000 baskets sent out on one train during this busy era. And then in 1878, about 15,000 baskets were shipped to Chicago from Watervalley. The village plat of Watervalley was laid out by Smith and Merrick, and it gave to it originally a narrow strip of land which became Main Street, between the creek and the river, and Mr. Swain made several additions, notably the addition south of the railway track known as Newtown during that time with great improvements in the way of a blast furnace and other manufacturers that were later promised. But for some reason, the schemes and the long-term projectivity and plans for the village of Watervalley, which some of the early founders had, failed. And although the town lots were sold and improvements made and people did move there, it never grew into the huge prospering village that some of the original planners like Smith and Merrick had originally envisioned when they platted the village. As of the 2010 census, Watervalley had a population of 1,735 people. So you can see that it is still a very small village even today. Some other interesting history. In 1905, John Olson and Maud Nelson moved to Watervalley where they established a women's baseball team. Both of them had experience in the game. The Cherokee Indian baseball team set out on its Pullman car in the same year, complete with an electric light facility, a grandstand, and a 12 by 1200 foot fence. Nelson, who was born in Italy, was on the team. She was billed by her husband, Olson, as the undisputed women's champion pitcher of the world. And that is a little bit of history of the village of Watervalley 
over in Berrien County. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to leave a review or rating on whatever app that you are listening on. And be sure to share the podcast with other people that you know and encourage them to tune in and listen to the show. And if you're on Facebook, be sure to visit my page, Michael Delaware Author, and follow that page. That way you can keep track of all the upcoming announcements that I have happening with my book coming out in the spring of next year. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. There's a contact form on there. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners and I will always try to email you back within the first 24 hours uh, if you send me a message on that. And you might remember I had a guest on, Bobby Mathis, from the Union City Society for Historic Preservation a few weeks back, and she was talking about the Dead Man's Hollow Tour that is happening this coming Saturday in Union City. And since we had that conversation on my show, she invited me to come and play one of the parts. I guess one of the people that had committed to playing the role had something come up and she needed help with uh, someone to fill in. So I will be actually, instead of just visiting this show for the first time this year, I'm actually going to be participating as one of the performers. So you guys can come down and see me in that Dead Man's Hollow tour in Union City, and that's happening this coming Saturday. So you can find out information by searching the Union City Society for Historic Preservation on Facebook and get your tickets that way. And at Christmas time on December 16th, it'll be Tales of Christmas Past, which is the big performance that I'm working on right now for the holiday season. And that includes not only Bobby Mathis, but Brian McCombs, Jill McCombs, Dave Eddy, and Donna Rickman and myself putting on this performance. And it's going to be a wonderful holiday show. We did it last year. We're coming back with the same cast again. And it is really one of the most uh, wonderful performances I've ever been in. And this year is going to even be more magical because uh, the History Education Center is fully completed now. So it's just a wonderful venue you to put on a show and at Christmas time it's such a uh, great time of year to be getting into the holiday spirit so I hope that you guys will look out for those tickets and secure your tickets when I make the announcement that they are released and they should be available for sale later this month I'm shooting to try to have those on sale by October 15th so stay tuned to that and you can find out the information on that at the Battle Creek Regional History Museum's website at bcrhm.org And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening.